0: Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am Sarah, your host, coming in solo again this week. Today I've got some interesting stuff to talk about with all of you. Some really fascinating articles came out recently. I'm going to start with one called "Woman Collected $145,000 in Jobless Benefits Using Names of Death Row Inmates Scott Peterson and Carrie Stainer. This article was written by Melissa Hernandez. So if you want to hear more information about the Scott Peterson case, we talked about that in episode number seven, March 31st, 2019. That was a really interesting one, but this one caught my eye because Scott Peterson was involved in this little scheme as well. But a Sacramento woman has been charged with multiple counts of felony grand theft and forgery after she allegedly collected more than $145,000 in unemployment benefits using the identities of convicted, killers Scott Peterson and Carrie Stainer, the state attorney general's office announced last week. From April 2020 to September 2021, Brandy Iglesias allegedly filed and collected unemployment benefits from the California Employment Development Department using the names of Peterson and Stainer. Don't let the infamous names distract you from who this crime really hurt, the most vulnerable in our society, California Attorney General Rob Bonta said in a statement. EDD theft hurts families in need, parents left without jobs during a pandemic, and Californians struggling to get by. That's why I'm thankful for my agents and for our partners in the EDD and CDCR for their work together in this case. Prosecutors said Iglesias worked for a private company that contracted with San Quentin State Prison, and it may explain how she was able to obtain access to prisoners' personal information. According to the criminal complaint, Iglesias is charged with using Peterson's identity to collect $18,562 in unemployment benefits in June 2020, and she later filed for additional benefits using Stainer's identity, collecting $20,000 more. Death Row inmates Stainer and Peterson are serving life sentences in San Quentin. Stainer, a convicted serial killer, was sentenced to the death penalty in 2002 for the kidnap and murder of four women at Yosemite National Park in 1999. Peterson is facing the death penalty for the murder of his pregnant wife, Lacey, and unborn son, Connor, in 2004. Iglesias was arrested Saturday in Contra Costa County and was arraigned in Sacramento County Superior Court on Wednesday. She did not enter a plea and was ordered to be held on a $20,000 bail pending an October 26th court date. California was one of the largest public benefit systems in the country and the COVID-19 pandemic led to an even greater influx of unemployment benefit applications across the state after businesses were forced to shut their doors when Gavin Newsom issued the country's first statewide stay-at-home order in March 2020. Since then, more than $180 billion in benefits has been paid out, according to the State Employment Development Department website, with at least $20 billion going to scammers who posed as prison inmates. That is absolutely crazy that that much money went out in that manner. The next article is another interesting one. And the next one relates to Brittany Drexel, who we covered in episode 139, August 8th, 2021. And this case has been in the news a little bit lately when they presumably found Brittany's killer and located her body. But Raymond Moody is the man that now they believed killed Brittany, but he is pleading guilty to killing missing teen Brittany Drexel and sentenced to life in prison. Raymond Moody, the man who confessed to killing missing teenager Brittany Drexel in 2009 while she was on a spring break trip in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, was sentenced to life in prison on Wednesday. Moody was also sentenced to 30 years in prison for kidnapping Drexel and 30 years in prison for raping her. Moody confessed in May to killing 17-year-old Drexel and led law enforcement to her remains. He has been a person of interest in the killing for over 10 years. Moody was put on law enforcement's radar in 2011 when a family member of Drexel contacted law enforcement and suggested that they may want to investigate him as he was living in nearby Georgetown, South Carolina, around the time of Drexel's disappearance. On Wednesday, he pleaded guilty to criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, forcible kidnapping and murder by means of manual strangulation. In exchange for his guilty plea, the state dropped an obstruction of justice charge against Moody. In April 2009, Drexel of Chile, New York, told her mother she would be spending a few days at a friend's house in Rochester, New York, when she in fact went away on a spring break trip in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, without permission. The last known footage of Drexel showed her leaving a hotel April 25th, 2009. Investigators revealed they re-examined cell phone data and surveillance footage in 2019 and 2020 and were able to determine the exact location of Drexel's cell phone at certain positions. Investigators' major break in the case came when they were able to pinpoint her exact location when something happened to her. Drexel's cell phone was moving at a walking speed, then it began moving at a speed of 55 miles per hour, leading investigators to determine that she was in a vehicle at that point. When investigators examined the timeline of her disappearance matching when she went from walking and getting into a vehicle to the last seen surveillance footage of her, they were able to locate a vehicle in the corner of the video. After pinpointing the last walking cell phone ping and first vehicle speed ping, video reviewed by investigators showed only one vehicle on the road passing Drexel's location at that time. Police were then able to link that vehicle to Moody and eventually Moody admitted to police he was the person driving that vehicle. Investigators also worked with Angel Vaus, Moody's girlfriend who wore a wire as investigators focused on Moody. After obtaining a search warrant and searching Moody's residence, investigators were unable to find anything of evidentiary value. But FBI investigators did have a face-to-face conversation with Moody when they were executing the search. Investigators informed Moody that he and Vals were the subject of the investigation, and Moody agreed to sit down for an interview. He then confessed to the murder of Drexel in that interview May 5, 2022. Drexel's family members spoke at Moody's hearing Wednesday, tearfully asking the judge to sentence him to the fullest extent of the law. You will forever carry the scars of what my daughter did to you, and I hope you are haunted by what you did to her. Today, no one wins, Dawn Drexel, Brittany's mother said, speaking at the hearing on Wednesday. The next article that we're going to talk about is Madeline McCann, and we covered that episode May 12th, 2021, and it was episode 130 if you want to go back and hear some more details about the Madeline McCann case. But Madeline McCann suspect hit with five new rape and sexual abuse charges. And Anna Norskiewicz wrote this article. Berlin, a German public prosecutor, has announced new charges against Christian Bruckner, the man suspected of kidnapping and killing British toddler Madeline McCann in 2007. The public prosecutor's office in Braunschweig, central Germany, said Tuesday that Bruckner would be put on trial on three counts of rape and two counts of child sexual abuse, all unrelated to the still unsolved McCann case. The Braunschweig police prosecutor's office Tuesday brought charges against a 45-year-old German man, before the regional court for several sexual offenses he is alleged to have committed in Portugal between December 28, 2000 and June 11, 2017, Public Prosecutor Hans Christian Walters announced. The accused is the same person who is being investigated on suspicion of murder in connection with the disappearance of the three year old British girl, Madeline Beth McCann, from an apartment complex in Portugal on May 3, 2007. The prosecution has accused Bruckner of raping three women, including an Irish national identified as Hazel B., who was 20 when she was attacked in her apartment in Portugal in 2004. According to investigators, the perpetrator in that attack acted very similar to the man who attacked and raped a 72-year-old woman known as Diana M. in her home in Portugal in 2005. Ruckner was sentenced in 2019 to seven years in prison for that crime and is currently serving the sentence at a prison in Oldenburg. Hazel B. became aware of Bruckner when new reports resurfaced about evidence linking him to McCann's disappearance. My mind was blown when I read how he had attacked a woman in 2005, both the tactics and the methods he used, the tools he had with him, how well he had planned it out, she told the Guardian newspaper in 2020. I puked, to be honest with you, as reading about it took me right back to my own experience. The identities of the other two rape victims behind the new charges have not been revealed. The prosecution has relied heavily on the testimony of witness Manfred S. and Helge B., who stole the video camera and tapes from Bruckner's house in southern Portugal in 2006. The tapes included images of Bruckner molesting two other women, according to prosecutors. At an unspecified time between December 28, 2000 and April 8, 2006, Bruckner surprised and raped an unknown approximately 70 to 80-year-old woman in her bedroom at her vacation home in Portugal, the prosecution said. The third victim was an unknown German-speaking girl, at least 14 years old, whom the suspect had tied naked to a wooden pole in the living room in the house where he lived in Portugal, beat her with a whip, and forced her to perform oral sex. The videotapes depicting these acts have since disappeared, according to the prosecutors. Bruckner is also facing two new counts of child sexual abuse. On April 7, 2007, he allegedly accosted a 10-year-old girl from Germany as she played on a Portuguese beach. The prosecution said the German man, wearing only shoes, grabbed the child by the wrist and began to perform masturbation movements before releasing her. Ten years later, on June 11, 2017, Bruckner was accused of exposing himself to a girl aged 11 and masturbating at a playground in Portugal. The girl ran to her father and Bruckner was arrested. The clues that led to the new charges against Bruckner came largely from the investigation in the McCann case. The prosecution remains convinced that Bruckner abducted and killed the British girl, but her body has never been found, and there's no indication that a murder charge is imminent. The investigation into the disappearance of Madeline continues, regardless of the indictment, Walters said, declining to offer any further information on the case. Bruckner's trial on the new charges will begin as soon as the spring. This guy is a real menace, and hopefully they will put him away for the rest of his life. And one final news article for the episode today. This one is a really sad one as well. Brussels ISIS bombing survivor Shanti de Corti, 23, dead by euthanasia. And this brings up some interesting legal issues in that many countries are now more and more considering legalizing euthanasia. And this is one of those cases. Matthew Sadaka wrote this article. And a young woman who survived an ISIS bombing chose euthanasia rather than to live with the trauma, according to a report. Shanti de DeCorte was a 17-year-old student traveling with her classmates at Brussels airport when ISIS terrorists detonated a bomb. The March 2016 blast, along with two others set off by the group at a Brussels subway station, killed 32 people and left more than 300 injured. DeCorti, who was not physically injured in the attack, endured years of panic attacks and depression afterwards. She tried to kill herself twice, once in 2018 and once in 2020, and posted regularly on social media about her struggles. With all the medications I take, I feel like a ghost that can't feel anything anymore. Maybe there were other solutions than medications, she wrote in one post. DeCorte, then 23, chose to be euthanized earlier this year, which is legal in Belgium. She died on May 7th after two psychiatrists signed off on her request. Antwerp prosecutors began an investigation into Costa's case after a neurologist at the CHU Brugman Academic Clinical Hospital in Brussels made complaints that the young woman's decision to end her life was made prematurely. The case was closed after it found that no violations had been made in the process for being euthanized. Wow, that is an incredibly sad, sad story. But we're going to move on to the main case for the day, and that is the case of Danielle Parker. Danielle Dixon was born in 1982 and grew up in Atlanta, the daughter of a single mother who worked hard to provide a better life for her child. Danielle was somewhat timid and lacked self-confidence. She was also overweight and shy, but eventually came out as gay in high school. Her family was supportive. Revealing this closely guarded secret actually helped Danielle come out of her shell and become more confident in herself. After this, Danielle lost weight and loved to dress up to show off her weight loss. However, not all of this was good for Danielle. She soon started running with the wrong crowds and falling behind in school. Eventually dropping out, she spent the following years jumping between jobs and relationships. She was social, vivacious, and loved going out often. And in 2005, she was single when she met Crystal Parker while hanging out at a popular Atlanta nightclub. Four years Danielle Sr., Crystal also came from Atlanta, but had grown up originally in Central Florida. She was active, athletic, and strong. She was competitive. She had a twin brother, and she was very close with her family. Like Danielle, Crystal came out as gay in high school and decided that sports were her thing as she excelled at just about everyone she tried. Crystal had a basketball scholarship to go to college when a health issue canceled that she was diagnosed with lupus and spent a few years getting medical treatments and was in and out of hospitals this was a significantly challenging time for crystal but even so she eventually got her college degree and started attending the police academy everyone thought she was the perfect candidate to become a police officer And by 2006, she was a cop in East Point, Georgia, when she met Danielle at this Georgia nightclub that she had been working at in her off-duty hours. Crystal had seen her future wife from across the room and approached She wanted to be with Danielle immediately when she saw this woman. And evidently, according to their friends, the two women became inseparable and Danielle moved into Crystal's East Point home not long after. Crystal took great care of Danielle spending lots of money on her new girlfriend and giving her whatever she wanted and in return Danielle cooked, cleaned and made sure Crystal was taken care of at home. One year later the two married at a pride festival in a civil ceremony. After this Crystal helped her wife get her GED and supported her in pursuit of a nursing degree. Crystal also helped pay for classes and training to help her wife become a certified nursing assistant. In 2012, Danielle changed her last name to Parker in a show of her love and support. And then 2012 was also a great year for Crystal. She was voted officer of the year and got promoted to corporal within the police department. So then we're gonna fast forward to July, 2013, between Atlanta and the Hartview Jackson Airport sits East Point, Georgia. It's a town of about 30,000 people. And once it was a very high crime area, but over the years, residents like 34-year-old Crystal Parker have worked very hard to improve the neighborhoods. Crystal Parker was a police officer in this community. She patrolled the neighborhoods and created a better place for the residents that she loved helping. She lived in East Point with her 30-year-old wife, Danielle Parker, and the two had Sunday night dinners with an older friend. These sort of movie dates were a regular thing, and the elderly friend showed up on this particular evening in July 2013 for her regular date with the Parkers, but the front and the back doors were both open when she arrived, and no one responded when she called out. A neighbor then began searching the house and noticed the smell of death. She then found Crystal's dead body in the master bedroom not long after. Crystal was laying on the bed with blood dripping from a head wound that had obviously taken her life. She'd been shot in the back of the head one time. The neighbor called 911 and police and EMT showed up and pronounced Crystal Parker dead. There were no clues, no suicide note, no weapons, or anything else to explain why this may have happened. Police got to work investigating the death of one of their beloved fellow officers right away. Was this a random act of violence, a revenge killing? And where was Crystal's wife, Danielle? Police determined very quickly that Crystal had been dead for several days decomposition had set in and everyone was on high alert in that neighborhood because she was a cop in East Point. The force handed her case over to the Fulton County team to investigate. Was the fact that Crystal was a cop a reason she had been killed? Was this revenge for an arrest or was this completely random? And that was the question that they were having difficulties answering. There was no evidence of a break-in and nothing was missing but Crystal's phone and her service weapon. It looked like whoever killed her knew that she would have a gun in the home. However, because there was no forced entry into the home, it had to have been someone she knew or someone that had a key to the house. The alarm was not on and Crystal had been killed in her own bed. These were signs that she was caught off guard and may not have known someone was in the house. Crystal and her wife Danielle had lived together for approximately six years. But where was Crystal's wife now? This was not looking good. Danielle eventually ended up calling the friend who had discovered Crystal's body. She had heard from a mutual friend that police were at the home she'd shared with Crystal. She found out then that Crystal was dead. The body had been there for days. How could Danielle not have known? But it was soon revealed that Crystal and Danielle had recently broken up. To be exact, it was three months before Crystal's murder that the two had parted ways. Danielle Parker went into the police station to give a statement shortly thereafter. During her interview, Danielle admitted things had become strained between her and her former spouse. Police were baffled that Danielle appeared so emotionless, though, when she came into the police station. She claimed she'd moved back in with her mother while she and Crystal were on a little break. The two were cordial, though, she said. She continued to have periodic visits to Crystal's home in East Point. She also claimed the two were working things out, but Danielle claimed that she hadn't been to Crystal's house in days. First, police checked with Crystal's boss. Evidently, she had missed work on the 4th of July and had not notified anyone. Her supervisor, concerned, obviously, called and got no answer, and then texted Crystal, but medical examiners believed that it was likely she was already dead by this point. Strangely, though, Crystal's phone texted back to her supervisor, saying that her dad was in the hospital and she could not talk. And this was very unlike Crystal because she was usually punctual and communicated if she was not going to be around, and she failed to call in the next day as well. So the supervisor called her again and got no response she then texted crystal's phone again who responded that she was okay and that was it so this is very kind of strange and unusual behavior for such a reliable person as it turns out the texts were not from crystal the phone had to have been with a killer phone also had to have been with someone who knew crystal because of the reference to her father By July 9th, 2013, Crystal's neighbors were shook and her fellow police officers were deeply concerned. The weapon that had killed Crystal Parker was confirmed to be her own 38 caliber service weapon. The police immediately suspected Crystal's estranged wife may have had something to do with this. Because Danielle claimed that it was just a break and the two were attempting to work things out, but Crystal's friends and family had a different story to tell. Danielle had been kicked out after many months of infidelity. She was taking advantage of Crystal's generosity and refused to pitch in around the house. And although she'd gotten her GED, she didn't want to work and refused to pitch in financially as well. Crystal was trying to inspire her wife to have drive and ambition, but Danielle did not seem to care that Crystal was the family's sole breadwinner and was kind of getting tired of that scenario. Danielle really didn't want to work and Crystal had been okay with this at first, but after years of this, Crystal started to feel like she was being taken advantage of. Danielle then cheated on Crystal multiple times throughout their relationship. The two were constantly at odds because of this and breaking up and getting back together multiple times was sort of their norm when Danielle would promise that it would never happen again and the two would eventually get back together. Crystal's friends and family begged her to leave Danielle, seeing that this was a very unhealthy situation, and things came to a head a few months before Crystal's murder. Crystal had been working at her off-duty job as security in a nightclub and had actually come home early one evening to find Danielle and another woman in their house at East Point. Crystal was done at that point and broke things off. Even so, Danielle was begging Crystal to take her back, and given their history of the same things, she had no reason to believe it would be any different this time. Danielle, nonetheless, continued to come around, and Crystal kept giving her money, as well as helping her out. The only problem was, Crystal had started dating another woman, and Crystal's family indicated that Crystal was in love with this new person. She seemed happy and content, and Danielle was not happy about this. When questioned, Danielle claimed that it had been a week since she'd visited Crystal, but her phone records told a different story. Cell phone records put Danielle in the house around the time of Crystal's death. Not only that, but while Crystal had lay dead in her own bedroom, her phone was traveling with Danielle's to another county. It looked like Danielle had been the one texting Crystal's supervisor. By July 9th, police got a search warrant for Danielle's mother's house, where she'd been staying. This was also one of the last places Crystal's phone had pinged. Once there, they found Crystal's wallet and phone and a 38 caliber bullet that matched the one that killed Crystal. Danielle was brought into the police station, and they showed photos of the crime scene to her. She seemed completely stone-faced, was detached, and sort of weird. She failed to show any emotion for her former spouse, and this was very highly suspicious. This was enough for the police to arrest Danielle for murder. The case was largely circumstantial, and there was no witnesses or direct evidence. By July 9, 2013, just days after Crystal was found, police now had 30-year-old Danielle Parker in custody and charged with murder. The evidence was piling up against Danielle, even though the murder weapon was never found. Police did find a bullet at Danielle's mother's home that matched the one that killed Crystal. To add more evidence to convict, police searched Danielle's computer. She searched for things like how to interview with police, how to pass a lie detector test, and she also had done daily searches for information related to Crystal's death before she was even found. Crystal's new girlfriend had also confirmed speaking with her new girlfriend July 4th. Danielle's cell phone records matched up showing that she was in Crystal's house at the same time as Crystal was talking to her new love on the phone. Police suspect Danielle had heard the call, became enraged when she realized her relationship was finally over, and killed her former lover. In the background, Danielle had been dating a man and telling him she'd just gotten out of a marriage with a man who abused her. She claimed she was being stalked, and she also told him on July 4th she was going to her former spouse's home. Evidently, Danielle Parker implied by text that she'd killed her former spouse in self-defense. Danielle faced life in prison, and she rejected any plea deals prior to her trial. By November 5th, 2014, the trial was moving forward for the July 2013 murder of Crystal Parker. But right before the jury selection process could begin, Danielle surprised everyone by entering a guilty plea. She did not apologize or show any kind of remorse. She looked like she was in no way sorry for what she had done. Ultimately, Danielle Parker got life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. She will be eligible for parole in 2044 at the age of 62. Wow, horrific case indeed. I guess you never can tell about someone, even though you love them and think you know them, you never really can tell. In any case, we're going to wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. All sources that we use for the show today will be in the show notes for the show. We do occasionally post pictures on Instagram at the BFD podcast. And please join us again next week as we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!
1: Thank you.